Hey everyone, and welcome back to Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. So it may be summer, but there is no rest for the wicked, let me tell you. And we've been working very, very hard to keep creating excellent content to grace your lovely ears. So over the next two episodes, episode 44 and 45, we will be sharing the recordings from our first ever live event, where we explored public engagement in science and new methods of science communication. So this is a topic that is very near and dear to us here at the podcast. And in preparation for this episode, yesterday we were going over some of the initial proposals that we wrote up and we laughed quite a bit because the passion and conviction were just dripping off the pages so for instance a recurring opening line was and i quote there exists a divide between the world of science and the public sphere dramatic (laughs) but it's true though and this divide seems to be particularly stark here in canada tied to this is also this general lack of a national slash broad platform that supports crosstalk between scientists and the public, as well as communication of new scientific content to Canadians. So of course, it's not that there's nothing in place here, but we at times really have felt frustrated with the lack or minimal amount of creativity, innovation, or just plain fun in the ways in which science is communicated. So of course, there are many bright stars that are keeping us afloat. Shout out to Samantha Yamin and ASAP Science. But we do think we can do better. So instead of just continuously grumbling about this in the background, we decided to get a group of awesome people together, people who are already working on what we hope to see more of in the near future. Thanks, Alex. So the first panel explored the current state of public science literacy in Canada and why scientists should be invested in the public's appreciation of scientific discovery. Basically, we're not in the worst position, but we definitely just can't sit back and let things continue as they are. And in terms of moving forward, our panelists talked a good deal about the accessibility of researchers and their work, the importance of bringing outreach activities to community centers and libraries across the nation, particularly in underserved communities, and promoting instances of citizen science, where members of the public participate in the discovery and decision-making process. So here's who you'll hear from. Hello, everyone. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, My name is Merdad. Merdad is the CEO and founder of the Canadian Science Policy Center a volunteer-based organization at the intersection of science policy and innovation. Hi everyone, my name is Doina Michelle. Doina is the CEO and founder of Hervolution, where she focuses on getting young girls into STEM. Hi, I'm, I'm Dan Weaver. I'm currently writing a dissertation. Dan is a PhD candidate from the Department of Physics at the University of Toronto, where he's been involved in a variety of science outreach initiatives. He's also on the board of directors in an organization called Evidence for Democracy. My name is Connie Parvin. Connie is a longtime parent advocate in the autism research world, founder of the Canada-Israel Autism Research Initiative, and now a master's candidate in the IMS Translational Research Program. And our moderator was Tatiana Picard, an IMS alum, founder, and academic editor of Picard Editing. So we also just want to take this brief moment to thank our sponsors. First up, we have the School of Graduate Studies. Thank you. Then we have the Institute of Medical Science, our home base. Thank you very much. Big up. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Mingyao. The Gardner Foundation, Invivo Communications, and of course, the University of Toronto Graduate Students Union. Thank you, everyone, for allowing us to bring this episode to you, the listener. So we hope you'll enjoy the episode, and we hope it may influence the way you think about public engagement in science. And uh, one last thing before we get into the conversation. We did run into a bit of technical difficulties with the audio. You'll hear from Alex and I throughout the episode, and we'll infuse a little bit of insights to complement the discussion. So yeah, I hope you do enjoy. I guess we can start with the first question, um, which is, what do you think is 
the status quo of public engagement in science in Canada, and why is public engagement important? And maybe we can start with Connie and go in order. The public engagement in science is critical, and part of it is that the the public, the patient, we're all patients, we're all users of the healthcare system, and so if from a healthcare perspective, um, I think the patient-parent voice um, in research is important. I think we um, we have stories to tell and we have things to say that are valued in the research world. And I think that more and more, from my experience, I encounter groups of scientists, and particularly in autism and neurodevelopmental research, who want to hear from me and want to hear my perspective. So it's valuable for that. So when you ask about the status quo, I think it's changing, and maybe the other panelists can, can expand on that. From my perspective, I think that I'm hoping that I'm helping to pioneer that change by being out here and, and talking about the patient-parent perspective and role in science and pushing the boundaries. And I think they are moving. They're expanding, they're growing, they're changing. And, and they're changing at a pace that I think we need to help science keep up with that too. To, to, to provide insights and, and um, experiences that, that um, advise and inform and enlighten science. So it's changing. So, Dan, you do agree with me? I actually really like uh, the fact that you're identifying that, that things are, are changing, and this is an interesting moment uh, in time. And I, I, would, I would agree with that. Uh, but I will say, in terms of the status quo, uh, there are a lot of really wonderful organizations and fantastic people that are involved in communication. Uh, I'm not sure that I would say it's the norm. Uh, a lot of my colleagues are not very comfortable talking to the public. Uh, they don't really see it as part of what a scientist does. Uh, at, at Evidence for Democracy, we've got a group called the uh, Network of, of Experts, where we try to bring scientists in and help uh, give them some training and, and, and give them opportunities to talk about their research and how it connects with policy and different kind of topics that are, that are in the news and on the public's mind. And you know, it's, it is a struggle. So I'd say part of the status quo is there's a lot of really positive change, but there's also uh, a culture within science that resists this kind of role as well. And there's certainly an aspect of the public uh, in that culture that is also not that interested uh, and kind of embraces a lot of misconceptions and very questionable sources of information. Um, you know, you could use, uh, got these Twitter chats, uh, Canadian side chat. Uh, and the last speaker we had, kind of, not speaker, but they were on Twitter answering questions, I was discussing actually both stuff uh, about, and he had written a book, is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and so there is this aspect of, of the public's kind of awareness of science uh, that's incomplete. And, and they're going to celebrities for, for information, and, and that's, that's very troubling. So I think the status quo is there's a lot of positive uh, initiatives. This is one of them. Um, but <laughs> I think there's a lot of room to talk about uh, the role of science in society and, and, and encourage scientists to have these conversations and encourage the public to think critically and, and talk to people who are experts in these fields and, and make those connections. So hopefully... Uh, Thank you.
So in response to Dan's point on celebrities as a source of scientific information, Joyna went on to say that the reason people turn to celebrities is because they speak their language, and oddly enough, they're easier to identify with than scientists. So we can't forget the importance of using accessible language and what others call layman's language. And ultimately, we should boil things down back to the essential questions that brought them forth and share these with our communities. Just to add to that, Alex, I think one of the challenges scientists face when engaging a broad audience is that they know so much. And so they're prone to overestimating how informed everyone else is with their material. And as you said, being conscious of language and recognizing that the public hasn't learned our technical jargon is an important first step. For instance, on the podcast, we like to meet the scientists halfway. We come to the interview prepared with a basic understanding of their research, and in turn, we ask them to draw from simple and familiar examples to illustrate the key issues they want to discuss. The end result is making their work relevant and relatable not only to the general public, but to other scientists as well. Let's keep listening. Yeah, I, I wanted to just respond to some things that you said. Because um, I find as a, uh, you know, I started out in my career as a parent with a uh, child with a diagnosis of autism who was 19 months. And I immediately turned to the scientist, or they turned to me when, when uh, he first had, when, when, when my son was first diagnosed, and they asked me questions, and they started engaging me right off, like, how did I get there? Why, why, what made me come at that stage? Um, what, they were really curious about me, and me, and, and for me, and my husband, and what we saw, why we, why we took action, like why we made that step. And I think it's a, to, to what you said, I think there's a point to, there's, there has to be a coming up, a meeting together of mine. I was really interested in contributing and what I had to say and, and told our, we told our story to, to the, the, um, the developmental pediatrician who was also a researcher. And she wanted to listen and she wanted to capture our information. And that was the starting point of my journey and my career as a uh, lay, I should say, parent participant in research. And the, but the, but the, the organizations were as open to me being involved as I was wanting to be. And so they opened their doors. So I would say that the institutions, and, and I, I'm so proud of the institutions in this country in neurodevelopmental research and in autism research because they have really embraced um, the parent voice and um, to a lesser extent, but they're working on the, the self-advocate or the patient voice in autism, and particularly because it's mostly with children, um, but they've really embraced and opened up those doors and those um, ivory towers, if you want to call them that, and said, yes, come in and sit with us and, and um, give, give us uh, some insights or feedback or um, stories that we can actually be inspired by and we can work with. And I think for me, as a, at the time as a new parent, it was the most um, rewarding thing for me to be able to be um, needed for something in, in, that, in that setting and to be actually really valued. And that set me off and that was the most um, uh, the thing that guided me the most. So it was the, the receptiveness of the science community to my um, participation that brought me in. And I think that to that point that I think that 
um, the public or families or um, people who want to engage with research need to also need to initiate and need to find those places where they um, can tell their stories that will be heard in the way that they want to be heard. So, so there is room, and that's changing a lot from, from the institution. So we just heard from Connie talking about her personal experience of uh, engaging in science. And it's really interesting to see this sort of spectrum coming forth of public engagement in science, where on the one end you have the personal experiences, like with Connie and Doina, and then on the other end you have individuals like Merdad who work more on a macro scale, like in government, pushing policies and trying to change politics. So speaking of politics and policies, Merdad shared some interesting stats with us. So for instance, the Council of Academies in their 2012 report indicated and found that Canadians are open-minded and interested in science. And some other things they found is that, for instance, 80% of Canadians would like to know more about science. But there's also some misconceptions. For instance, 47 still believe in the link between autism and vaccinations. This is something that, of course, has been time and again scientifically invalidated, yet there are still some misconceptions. And likewise, 40% are unsure about the scientific evidence of climate change. So basically, we're not in the worst position, but we definitely can't just sit back and let things continue as they are. More crosstalk between science and the community is becoming increasingly crucial. Uh, if I may, I'd like to uh, go back uh, to the why public should be engaged in science, and that's an important question, and I think that should be discussed more. Uh, there are numerous reasons that why public should be engaged in science and what it means engagement. First of all, it is the public money, mostly, who is spent in scientific research. So the public should be engaged in decision making, in scientific research process, and to be informed about the outcome of this scientific research. That's number one. Number two is uh, our society, as a democratic society, is built on numerous institutions. Politics is one of them. Government is another one. Media, independent media, is another pillar of this democratic society. And science is another pillar of democratic society. What we have witnessed in the past, especially 30 years, the decreased trust of the citizens into the first three pillars of this democratic society that I mentioned. There is a very level of trust with politicians and politics is at the bottom. Almost the same thing with media. Government is a bit more trust. We can't afford to lose the trust of the citizens to the fourth pillar of our democracy, that's science. For that reason, we must make sure that citizens are engaged in the scientific process. Once again, what it means, decision-making, participation of scientific research and discovery, and be engaged with the outcome of that. And the fourth reason, or third reason, the last, is the democratization of science, right? So we cannot afford to have an elite class without any systematic, dynamic relationship with the rest of society, that they do very important thing, but they have to be able to get engaged public, the policymakers, the politicians, 
what science does, and you know, we have a lot of technology, but we need to include science in it as well. So um, I just find a lot of times when I talk to parents, they don't know what STEM is, and they don't know what STEM does. They don't know how it can benefit for themselves personally, as a, as a human being, but also themselves as a career. Them. So it's just that information that they don't okay. really have. Talking to them directly. I think some people may not use Twitter, some people may not use social media, TV, you know, who has cable. There are one in five people in Ontario that do not have a computer at home or access to One in five? One in five. One in five. And they don't have a computer or access to internet. So maybe a form of uh, online communication might not be the only way. So we need to include other ways where you know, we have to go to them to share that information. I saw a lot of shaking heads. Dan? Uh, I would say nodding heads. Uh, nodding heads. <laughs> uh, shaking. Uh, I was just noticing uh, some connection between you know the Murdoch's comments of yours and amount of thoughts around uh, connecting the public and scientists. And something Murdoch said really stuck out to me, which was you know and, and yourself as well was a lot of scientists are kind of isolated on a university campus. And there are a lot of nice outreach activities that happen on university campuses. Uh, you know, open labs, come see the lab. Oh, that's very nice. But you know, just staying on campus is, is, is a big barrier. You're only getting a, a very small number of people that are aware of it, that are comfortable going there. Uh, and there's a real need for scientists to go where people are <laughs> instead of expecting that everyone will come to them. I think that's that's a real issue and it's, it's a cultural issue as well. Uh, scientists like to just you know, live on campus, this is their world, and you know maybe they could be you know trouble to, to talk to you once in a while. Um, so some of the things that can be done is well one I think there's a, a fundamental question within science about what's our role in society and and, and, and valuing the time that can be spent talking to the public because in my experience a lot of scientists don't place a lot of value on the time and effort and resources that could go into making those connections and so that's kind of a big picture thing in terms of what you can do uh, you know it's not that hard to, to approach the libraries and say you know do you have some library uh, speaking seminars that I could talk to, to people at I've done that and the libraries are like yeah there's a couple of places that would you mind going over over there? Uh, and I said, sure. Well, I don't mind. And you go and talk to people, or you go into schools. Uh, you know, we we we've approached school boards, both in Ontario and, and Nunavut, because we work in the Arctic, and, and say, well, would you like us to come by and do some activities and spend some time? Uh, and there's a lot of enthusiasm for that because people haven't asked them before. And, uh, and so we've gone up, and, and we don't just talk at them. We we, we brought instruments and, and brought the kids outside. Uh, and, and show them how to, how to work with the instruments, take their own measurements, and then again, it's giving them tools to empower themselves, right? Like, I don't want to just tell you about the instrument I play with, I want to give you an instrument and show you, and, and so that you can feel, touch, and experience that this could be you. If you want to understand your world, then, then we'll help you, see how you could do that, and, and I think that can be much more effective. Um, so I think we have to go to people, social media, libraries, schools, however you want to approach it, but, but get off campus. The speakers bring up really good points here. So we can't just have workshops at universities and then pat ourselves on the back. And this applies to us as well with the event that we organized. So while it was a success and attracted a lot of people, 
the audience to a great extent consisted of people in science. And that's fine, but it can't be enough. Next time, we really should consider hosting something like this at a community center or a library. And as well, co-organize it with community members, making sure that we're addressing topics that they want to hear about and voice their opinion on within this realm. These types of events may need some thinking outside of the box, but they're crucial. And Doina also mentions that online outreach is great, but an in-person outreach is equally important, especially for those who may not have ready access to internet or computers. You're right, Alex, and I'm so happy Doina and Dan brought this up. The main point they're trying to get across, and you'll hear it from Connie as well, is that outreach is a two-way street. Scientists, educators, advocates need to learn about the community as much as the community learns about their work. And this is why it's important to conduct outreach within communities. Not only will it increase the public's familiarity and access to scientists, but it also allows scientists to find a common ground uh, with the community and learn from them. Doyne also goes on to explain the barriers that make it difficult for people in underserved communities to access and obtain quality science literacy services and support, and how these barriers might impact public outreach planning and implementation. For instance, not everyone has access to internet or owns a smartphone. So an initiative that relies on social media engagement or written media more broadly can lead to ineffective outreach. And that's why I really love the idea of collaborating with community organizations and their leaders to ensure that our outreach work addresses concerns or issues specific to the community and engages them effectively. So nonprofits, community leaders, and educators, if you're listening to this, please let us know the best way to engage your community from the outset for Raw Talk Live 2019. All right, all right, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's hear some more from the panelists. And what can be done? I think it's a huge cultural work ahead of us to change the mindset. The vision about what science is about, as I mentioned, where, where is the relationship between science and society, right? What we think about science and how science should position itself with the rest of layers of society. That's a huge culture of work on, uh, that's for everyone, including the leaders of scientific research, right? Those the presidents of the granting councils who are the major funders of scientific research in Canada. They have to get that, and they get it, actually. As we discussed, all of us agree that the landscape is changing. That's as a result of the collective effort of everybody in this endeavor. And I think then the policymakers should change their perception of science and its position in society. And definitely the little things that opening the doors of the campus, I think one of the just one of the uh, performance indications of the universities that how much you are engaged with the local communities. That's very important. How much there are many campuses across the country who have little connection with their communities surrounding them. They don't know even how many nonprofit organizations exist in that area and how they can use those resources, right? So it's a huge cultural change. It's a huge process. But we must act quickly because if that 47% of the society feels that they are left out from this, we witness more of the, what we have seen, marginalization, radicalization, etc., etc., etc. The emergence of you know, anti-establishment, not that it's bad anti-establishment movement, but to the, uh, to the level that risk of uh, institutions in our society, that's an issue. 
Yeah, so I, I just want to bring, bring it a step back for a second in that when you talk about public engagement, I, I think that the reality is that who's, who researchers and scientists engage with are typically the public that care about their research. And you can't always engage with everybody um, because not everybody cares about your topic. So you might not care about the latest uh, autism research development and intervention or in, in, in some other uh, aspect. You may not care. And, and the thing is that I think that the more you dive in and really um, uncover who those uh, people that care, the public that care, you'll discover the ways of connecting with them. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you, you ask, how do you, how do you access those papers? Well, you know, more and more you'll see from, for instance, I'll, I'll give a plug to an organization I work with, it's the Ontario Brain Institute. And we, I work very closely with a group of neurodevelopmental scientists there um, in a network called the Pond Network. And every year they gather all of the um, parent uh, community that's been involved with them at some point in either clinical or research settings, um, and they've got up to uh, they've got about a couple thousand people and families from all uh, uh, parts of the GTA or Ontario, um, and they put on science days that are geared towards the families, and they have both scientists and families speak about the science, what it means to them, how it might impact them, where they might be able to um, find uh, nuggets of, of um, understanding that might help them in what it, as families. So, and then it matters. That public engagement to a group of a thousand families who have children with autism matters um, because the scientists are speaking directly to the, to the, the the patients or the families, and vice versa. And the families have the opportunity to speak at those kinds of events. And more and more of those kinds of engagements are happening in places that through uh, our, our, our great institutions, the Ontario Brain Institute and, and um, Canadian Institute for Health Research through their SPORE networks, um, engage the public through web webinars and through conferences like this and through knowledge translation. So, but I know I'm, I may not go out and um, want to engage in diabetes research because it just, at this point in my life, I can't take any more information <laughs> um, unless it impacts me. So I, I think there's a fine line between the public and the individual and how do you make it work for both the individual who has needs and the public who also needs to know and needs to be informed and, it, and we all have a stake in our health or in our, our world and our globe. Um, so it's defining who the public is. I would like to say that who, who is the public, you know, because if you do go into this, um, uh, Toronto has about what, 41 or 42 neighborhood improvement areas where the lowest of the, low, the poorest of the poor live, they don't actually know about anything that is happening. Even if they probably have had access with, you know, they went to the doctor for a certain thing, then that doctor tell them about, you know, 
there's more to this. You know, sometimes even as a as a patient, depending on where you are from, how much money you have, it really impacts how much access you have to certain resources. So, you know, when when there's something happening, I'm always curious to know who are the people that show up. Who is are they actually someone that comes from this diverse area? Like are they very diverse? Are they low income? Are they new immigrants? Do we speak in their language? You know, how how we provide the services or these things to them because. You know, when I go to um, in the West End, for example, or I go into Scarborough, we have some people that have never been downtown, and there's a lot of stuff that's actually happening downtown. And as well, if we have a conference or anything that is happening, is this happening in the area, or are we providing access? Are we making sure that they show up so that we can engage them? Because that doesn't happen with the population I work with. This, you know. Um, Really, it doesn't happen. Like I, I know people that have lived in Canada for three years, and they never been downtown. They live in, in the West End, and they never been, they never been downtown. And they don't have a doctor, or a, you know, they don't have certain access to resources. So how do they, how do they know about this stuff? And I'm always, you know, curious about this. So that's my two cents. Okay. Yeah. Four seconds left. Oh, second. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> beyond just medical sciences, which is directly with the patients. Right. That's only one part of the science. We're talking about all fields of science, mm -hmm. which are um, really, uh, you know, it's a huge world, right? So it's not just the uh, um, front uh, side of the clinical science, which is directly dealt with patients. Yes, of course they should be engaged. Uh, the other thing from about who is the public, public is everyone. Yeah. Just go across Dundas uh, East, just a few blocks away from Young Street. What portion of that com those communities are engaged with the activities of University of Toronto, University of Ryerson, and they are not even one kilometer away from these two universities? Mm -hmm. That's the public mm -hmm. that should be engaged. Okay, I think we have to wrap it up. Thank you guys so much. I'm really happy Mayor Dodd brought up this point of engaging the other dimensions of science. So us here at, at the IMS are definitely somewhat biased towards the medical sciences due to our background. But Mayor Dodd reminds us that science expands way beyond that into realms like political science, sociology, mining, urban design, etc. And we need to continue moving towards upholding society where we implement infrastructure, best practices, and knowledge coming forth from our scientific institutions. Ultimately, this will truly allow for our country to excel and improve quality of life for all its inhabitants. So one of the main things that struck out for me is the many different ways in which people come to science. For some, it's a, it's a very personal experience, something that they may have not chosen, and they sort of get launched into it. And for others, it's a very deliberate choice, something that they study for for many years, like Dan. And then you have people like Mayor Dodd who kind of approach it from a different, higher-level perspective in government and are trying to push for these really big, higher-order changes. And you need all of that, and you need everyone to collaborate together. So that's, this is sort of like an overarching theme that really struck me and was very insightful. For next time, we want to strive to have a more inclusive panel. The thing is, outreach to diverse communities takes time, so patience and planning is huge. And we learned this firsthand. We did our best to bring diversity and stakeholders and gender to the panel. But diversity also accounts for ethnicity, race, religion, sexual orientation, and so much more. So thanks to everyone for the constructive feedback on the survey. It meant a lot to us in the program. 
And it's not that we didn't try or threw in the towel early. It goes back to patience and planning. Admittedly, we could have asked for help too, like going on social media, connecting with community-based organizations, or leveraging our extended network. But for the speakers who were able to make it and sat down on the panel, on behalf of the entire Raw Talk team and planning committee, thank you so much. Y'all were beyond amazing. Okay, another next step is sustainability. Hosting our first live show was awesome, but it's really the beginning of a new journey for us. We've now covered some basic principles of public engagement, addressed concerns, and identified where opportunities lie, so we need to continue that conversation, as well as explore other topics. We've also made some great connections, and it's important to develop those relationships further and continue collaborating. Likewise, engaging community leaders and organizations in the planning process and having these type of events in accessible spaces is also important. Last but not least, it's worth recognizing that a panel discussion may not be conducive to everyone, so trying out different live show and discussion formats is another possibility. All right, that's it from us. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to everyone who was involved in planning the event. Kat, Melissa, Aaron, Anton, we love you. And to our sponsors uh, for supporting us too. Um, big up to Sarah Topa from IMS. We couldn't have done it without you. All right, for real this time, tune in for episode 45 for part two, New Methods of Science Communication. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes.